Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there, and thanks for joining us. Today, my guest, Preston Cooper, and I are going to be talking about a subject that is definitely in the news. Preston is a visiting fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, and he studies the economics of higher education. That's in the headlines because as a presidential candidate, Joe Biden made a promise to forgive $10,000 in federal student loans for every borrower. As he's working now on a budget, he's receiving pressure from Congress to cancel even more student loan debt, up to $50,000 per person. But that's in the headlines even today because that is looking less and less likely. We invited Preston to come on the podcast because we wanted to talk about why higher education is so expensive and why so many of us have to borrow so much money to get a degree. Preston has worked at the American Enterprise Institute and the Manhattan Institute, and he writes regularly for Forbes. He's also had his work appear in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, U.S. News and World Report, Fortune, Real Clear Policy, and the list goes on and on. He has a BA in economics from Swarthmore College, and he is working on, as you will hear him say, a PhD in economics at George Mason University. Preston has a report that was recently published on why higher education is so expensive. And in our conversation, you will hear about that report. We'll link to it in the show notes. But what we really wanted to talk to Preston about was the fact that We still, most of us, believe that the path to success in this country involves a college degree, and yet the cost of a college degree goes up and up and up, and more of us carry more and more debt as a result. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the news today, but the first thing I saw today when I was looking at the news was that um, President Biden is not going to support, um, you know, the $10,000 loan cancellation or forgiveness that had been proposed. Um, And I I haven't gone into a lot of detail reading it, but I think the fact that it's even in the news that we're having kind of a national discussion about how much student loan debt needs to be canceled is probably kind of key to talking about how costly higher education is. And that's something that you know a lot about. So because it's a complicated subject, I know that, and you have a report on it, why it's so expensive, which we'll link to in the show notes. Let's start at the beginning. Why is higher education so expensive and has it always been this expensive? So well, thank you, Jennifer, for uh, for having me on, and uh, thank you for thank you for the great questions. Um, so that's obviously you know a very complicated issue, and I think that there are multiple causes out there for why yeah. uh, the cost of higher education is so high. Um, but I think just to think about it, you know, think about the way that the higher education market functions, and think about that relative to say how you purchase a laptop. When you want a new mm-hmm. laptop, obviously that's a fairly expensive purchase, but you can go online, you know, you can look at different models, you can see exactly what you're going to pay for each of those models, and you can compare, you know, the quality of each and um, uh, balance that against uh, the higher price and make the decision that works best for you. Uh, higher education doesn't really work anything like that. You do not know 
the price you are going to pay for college until you after you've applied and been accepted. And so because we have this very, very complicated, you know, financial aid system, you know, you'll get aid from the government, you'll get aid from your state, you'll get aid from your college. And that's great. That makes it more progressive, but it also enables colleges to hide what they're going to charge you until the very last minute when you are kind of trapped. <laughs> when you have gotten accepted to college, you might have only gotten accepted to one or two colleges. So if the college gives you a bill that you uh, don't really want to pay, then uh, then then you're basically stuck. <laughs> or you, yeah, can either, yeah. you can either choose to attend that college or you can either just or you can just say, uh, no, I, I'm not going to attend college. And that's uh, that's a decision a lot of students uh, uh, don't really want to make, you know, that's, that's a, right. that's a bad position to be in and colleges will take advantage of this. There is a billion dollar consulting industry out there that, um, colleges employ basically to tell them exactly how much each of their students is going to be willing to pay and to basically to the dollar before they'll be, um, uh, before, before they'll be unwilling to attend that college. So colleges yeah. are going to erase all of your consumer surplus. They're going to charge you exactly how much you're willing to pay and not $1 over. And that kind of system has just made it very difficult to know what, what the prices are gonna pay, you're gonna pay ahead of time and has in turn made it very difficult for colleges to compete and to lower those prices. So it's yeah. not a very well-functioning market. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was gonna say, you started by talking about a market and I was thinking it's not really like much of a market. In yeah. fact, the closest approximation I can think of, particularly this point about lack of transparency, in the um, cost is healthcare, right? Where you get a bill and you wind up, like you, you don't know why the bill is what it is. You know, you see the stuff about insurance, you see negotiated rates, this kind of thing. You can't go price shop for the most part. You can't price shop for healthcare type stuff. And we know healthcare is another place where costs are out of control. And there's, it seems like a lot of inefficiency. In your report, I have to say there were a couple of things that you just mentioned that I was totally unaware of. Um, First of all, I went back and I looked at what the tuition, so the sticker price, you call it, right? The sticker price tuition um, for the college I graduated from, and it's it's been a long time since I graduated, but I can tell you that looking at the graph that shows, you know, the sticker price for tuition and fees, it, it suggested that the cost of when I graduated from college to today, that that, that price tuition and fees would have would have roughly doubled. Now, when I went back and looked at it, um, it was actually more like 300% higher than what I my tuition was when I was going to college. And I was thinking to myself, what else in that time period has increased by 300%? Um, and I, I'm sure there are consumer goods that have increased that much in that time frame, but probably they've had some kind of innovation and there's relatively little innovation based on the way the costs are broken down um, for a college education, right? Like, it's not like there are tons more instructors than there were, you know, 20, 30 years ago. There are more administrators. There are probably fancier dorms than when I went to college. Um, there are a variety of different non-instructional positions. But it's not that it was cheap when I went to college. It just wasn't this expensive. What accounts over that period of time? Because you've got a graph in this report that just goes, you know, it's not a hockey stick, but it's not far off from that. <laughs> um, what accounts for this rapid increase 
in the cost of education. And it's not just inflation, right? Yeah, so you've, count, you've hit upon a very important distinct distinction there, which is the distinction between sticker price and net price. And sticker price is what you'll see on the college's website. That's the crazy like $75,000 number, or maybe even $80,000. It's going up every year uh, that, yeah. that, uh, that you'll see on the website. And then you also have net price. And so net price is what uh, you're going to pay after all sources of aid are applied. The aid that the college gives you, the aid that the government gives you, and state governments give you, that your employer might give you, that veterans programs might give you. And um, after you account for those those sources of aid, the cost of college has still gone up a lot. It hasn't gone up quite as much, but it's still gone up a lot. And I think you hit on, you know, a very uh, key cause of that, which is that there's an enormous innovation deficit in the higher education sector um, that, and I think a big part of that is that it's very, very difficult to disrupt higher education based on the way that we regulate it and based on the way that we structure the subsidies for it, that regulations and subsidies are very, very structured around the traditional higher education model, which is that you, you go to college for four years, you take a bunch of classes, you're sitting in classes with professors with an average size of 20 or 25, and then you get a sheepskin at the end of it. And there yeah. are, you know, other models out there. There's apprenticeships, there's boot camps, there's, you know, stackable credentials. There's all sorts of things out there. There's competency-based education. I'm not necessarily sure which one of those is best, you know, but right, I think right. one of the virtues of the market is that we don't know which is best and a lot of different options out there can compete and figure out what is the best way to, uh, what is the best way to provide an education and what is the best way to provide access to a better future because what most students are going to college for is not for the education, it's not to read Plato, it's to actually get a degree and enable you to get into uh, the labor force, get a good middle class job with, uh, with decent wages. Uh, and I think there are lots of ways to do that. There shouldn't just be yeah. the traditional model out there, but the way that we structure the regulation and the subsidies is very, very steered towards the traditional model. You have to get accreditation, you have to get approval by state authorizers, and these, these folks are going to be very, very biased towards the traditional model. So if you have a model of education that's not based on the, in the traditional way, they're kind of going to very look very skeptically at that. Um, and I think that that's also kind of a problem in healthcare. One of the reasons that healthcare costs are so expensive, which is a great analog, the education cost inflation and the healthcare cost inflation, because it's also very difficult to start a new hospital. You know, it's very difficult to, right. uh, it, right. it, it's very difficult to bring in new providers of this product in order to compete down the price and uh, innovate and provide new ways of delivering this product, this product or service that people want, that people need. Uh, and so uh, that's, yeah, it's, it's, that's a big part of the problem right there is that uh, we have an innovation deficit. I don't exactly know what the innovations are that will lower the cost of college, but I know that we owe it to students to try. And so I would, yeah. I would like to see much more innovation out there, but I, I fear that that will involve, you know, breaking down some of the structural barriers that we have right now in, in the higher education yeah. sector. Well, it's funny that you say that too, because I'm thinking about, I know the data in your report is up through like 2019, which is the last good data we have, but the year 2020, the year of the pandemic, right, should have in some ways provided an opportunity for some kind of innovation. So we just had Courtney Jocelyn on a few weeks ago, and she was talking about telehealth innovation, right, during the pandemic, that there are, you know, regulations and things that were rolled back. And now some of those, some of that learning in terms of telehealth in terms of ways that healthcare had to adapt 
in the midst of the pandemic are going to be made permanent and there are efficiencies that are picked up. So you would think, right, in, in higher education, I have a niece, I have two nieces actually who were freshmen this year in college. Um, when I talked to them about what they were doing at school, I didn't get the sense there was a, a similar kind of innovation for you know, class or that they were getting discounts on their tuition because they weren't on campus or if they were on campus. In one case, uh, she was required to be on campus but had to take all of her classes online. Um, I suppose that's an argument for still charging the same amount of tuition and fees <laughs> when somebody's residential. But I think a lot of people probably, I know this is true um, in secondary education at uh, in private school, a lot of people probably thought, hey, listen, if you don't have students in the buildings, right, and you can't offer all of the things that you were offering before, shouldn't there be some kind of discounting that went on? Or shouldn't there be in a place with all these really smart people in a university, some kind of innovation that will um, address the circumstances of the pandemic? Now, you you mentioned the difficulty of disrupting sort of this this industry, I guess. There are people who have tried to disrupt this through online education in the past, through MOOCs, right, through for-profit universities, but none of those things really seem to have made, I guess, it seems to me from the outside looking at this, a significant impact on lowering the cost of higher education. Um, and in the in the course of the pandemic, did we see some kind of innovation that suggests a way forward that would help lower the cost? And again, we're just talking about traditional higher education. As you noted, there are alternatives. There are apprenticeships, you know, there are community colleges, there are all kinds of things. We're talking about four-year liberal arts type or research type education. Yeah, of, of, of course. Um, I think that you're absolutely right that kind of the promise of, of online education has not, not been entirely fulfilled, that we've seen it hasn't really lowered costs. Um, and I think part of that gets back to what I was talking about before, which is the regulation and subsidy issues, that the online education models that we've seen are basically trying to replicate the four-year college experience, just moving it online. And yeah. they're trying to, you know, do the same number of courses taught by the same number of professors. And even though you're not in a physical building, you're still going to have a lot of the same costs. You have to pay the professors, you have to pay the registrars to, 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 to get everybody's uh, uh, classes, um, classes taken care of. Uh, there's a lot of ways in which that is just very, very similar to what, we, what we've been doing for centuries, what we've been doing for decades, and yeah. has, not, has not really done any sort of transformational change. And I think that that is because they are, you know, just trying to stay within the lines of the, uh, the regulations and the subsidies that have been that have been set up by the federal government and sometimes by state governments too. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, I have exactly, you know, the right answer to uh, what is, uh, what is the way that's really going to lower that cost. But I think what we need to think about is that we're not lowering the cost of education, we're lowering the cost of access to a better future. And I right. think that sometimes that means, you know, accessing a better future can be something that is going to look extremely, extremely different from the traditional college education. So I'll give you an example of um, the Federation for Advanced uh, Manufacturing Education. It's a um, network of manufacturing firms out in uh, Kentucky and they run an apprenticeship. And after your apprenticeship is over, 
the average student makes over $100,000. So, you know, mm -hmm. on par with like an engineering or computer science degree from a four-year college. And the way they do that is not necessarily just having people sit down in the classroom for, for several hours a week. They're having people learn the, the skills that they need to do it on the job. There is still some classroom education that's a component of that because, you know, classroom education is, it, it does have some uses and uh, that's probably never going to completely go away but it's very well integrated with what you're actually going to be doing in the workforce. And people have said, you know, people have participated in this program said, you know, this actually made me pay more attention to what I'm learning in the classroom. You know, if I actually, if I'm welding something and I, I need to know math for that, like I can, I can put that in context in my head when I'm sitting in math class and I actually started paying attention in math class now that I'm, uh, now that I'm welding and I know how this is going to be applied. Uh, so, that's, you know, something that doesn't really look anything like the four-year college experience, but it is still yeah. something that's it's getting students access to a better future. And there's one other, you know, point I want to make on this, which is that I think when students say they want to go to college, part of what they want is this experience of, you know, living in a smaller community, being close to all of your friends, being able to meet lots of new people. You know, one one study uh, that came out of uh, just a couple months ago showed that you know, a lot of a um, lot of college students will meet their uh, significant others, their life partners in college, and I think that's something that people people see a lot of value in that they like. You know, being able to meet new people and being able to find you know that one, their true love, uh, and I think that's an experience that doesn't necessarily have to be tied to college that, you know, that's yeah. an experience that we can replicate in other arenas of society. You know, we can have, you know, dormitory style housing for, for people in their early to mid twenties, you know, not necessarily the, the sharing, sharing a room with somebody, but, you know, <laughs> still, you know, right. lots of people being, uh, being uh, packed in the, in the same building with the, you know, big common spaces and pool tables and all that. Um, that's something that I probably would have gone for as a 23 year old. And I think that's something a lot of, a lot of former college students would go for. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's, that's what we need to get at. You know, what are actually, what are actually people buying? One, they're buying access yeah. to the better future and two, they're buying access to this community. And so we think college is currently fulfilling those needs for people right now, but there are other ways to do that. And we should think yeah. about, you know, what are the other ways we can do that? What are the potentially cheaper ways that we can do that? Um, and how can we, um, how can, how can we how can we meet the needs of not just college students but humans you know in that yeah. way no i think those I, I think those are really good points and the, and the point you made about buying access to a better future i think it's important for us definitely to acknowledge that that is what people associate with a college education right i mean i um i was very i think taken with um, Kevin Carey's book back in 2015, um, The End of College and the Future of Higher Education, because he went through and gave like a history of how we got to where we are in terms of four-year degrees uh, and why people go when they're 18 and that sort of, that sort of thing. And, and frankly, there's a lot of historical accident involved in this, it seems to me. But we do bundle a whole bunch of things together. And we say, you know, look, there's, there's relatively, one of the reasons I think colleges can, can charge as much as they do is there's relatively inelastic demand for what we associate with a, a college degree in this country, right? Um, in this sense, again, like healthcare, right? You, you're, gonna, you're gonna pay the bill because 
you have relatively inelastic demand, you're not gonna say, oh, well, I don't need that operation in most cases, right? Um, what I recall from that book is one, that it may be true and has been true for a long time that having a college degree is a key to higher earnings, right? It's, it's important to higher earnings over the life of a person. That's still true today. That wasn't just true, you know, in 1950 or 1960. That's still true today. Is it as true as it was? I mean, is that gap between not having a college degree and having a college degree closing over time as the cost of education goes up? Um, do I, I, I recall in your report, you talking about the fact that um, we, we see the degree as kind of a stand-in for credentialing, but a lot of jobs that require college degrees, there's nothing related to the competency to do the job that is connected to the degree itself. It's just a way of filtering, right? Um, so is it still true that I need a college degree to have a successful life? Yes. Was it ever true? Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, that has, has started to get more true. So there's kind of this, you know, self-reinforcing trend that we see out there where more people are going to college. Right now we have 70% of high school students will immediately go to college after they graduate or college or, or, or trade school or community college. And what we've seen is that employers are now requiring bachelor's degrees for jobs that did not require them in the past, especially, mm -hmm. you know, kind of more, um, a lot of middle-class jobs, you know, a lot of lower level managers, you know, secretaries, you know, even bartenders, about 30% of them have a college degree now. Um, and you're right, exactly, that a lot of these jobs, you know, went without a college degree back in 1980, but they require a college degree now. Um, they've changed somewhat, but they haven't changed transformationally such that, uh, such that, that you, you will need a college degree in order to do them. But we kind of do have this self-reinforcing trend where more people are getting the college degree. The employers say, we wanna find a way to filter for, for good quality applicants. And we perceive that good quality applicants uh, would, have, uh, would have college degrees. Uh, and so, we're going to require the degrees for these jobs that didn't require them in the past. Uh, prospective students see that and say, well, look at all these jobs that require a college degree. I guess I'd better go to college in order to get one. And uh, then, then that starts the process over again. And so yeah. we're not actually in that kind of process. We're not actually adding, you know, that much value to the economy if we're having students go through four years of, of school through four years out of the labor force in order to get this degree and in order to, uh, in order to fulfill the requirements that employers want, they're not actually necessarily learning skills that are going to enhance their productivity in the labor force and are going to enhance their ability to earn wages and add value to the economy. It's just another, you know, step that they have to go through in order to get into the labor force. Um, and that's that's something that I, I kind of worry about a lot, that um, I worry yeah. that, you know, as more and more of the population gets a college degree, people will start looking for new ways to distinguish themselves. And in 30 years, we might be talking about, well, so all these new jobs now are requiring master's degrees. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah. we already see that a little bit, that, uh, that graduate school attendance rates are up. You know, that was one of the few types of um, colleges that um, where enrollment actually went up during the pandemic was graduate schools, that a lot more people say, well, we're in a pandemic, so I'm going to go back and online and get a master's degree in my fields uh, because I think that'll enhance my ability to get jobs and ability to enhance my uh, my earning capabilities. Um, I mean, I'm participating in that right now. I'm a PhD student at George Mason University and 
my calculus right now is that, you know, if I have this degree, that'll enable me to get higher earnings in the future, you know, with all due respect to my professors, so my love, I'd not necessarily sure that studying the causes of the industrial revolution is enhancing my ability to do <laughs> to do the jobs out there, but um, it's very interesting. But I'm not sure it's it's adding much value to my uh, my labor productivity, um, and so we <laughs> and so we, we are kind of in this cycle. Um, and for many many years, uh, the uh, premium that students would get for college uh, was rising relative to the premium the, the wages that you'd earn as a high school graduate, but over the last 20 years, we've seen that stagnate. And I think a big part of that is now that so many new jobs require college degrees, even fairly lower wage jobs, lower middle-class jobs, that that, that premium is stagnating. And um, even that premium kind of uh, belies what the real value to the economy is if so many students are, uh, you know, just solely going to uh, college in order to uh, get access to jobs where the skills do not really require a college degree. So, you know, it's something yeah. I very much worry about. Um, and I hope that we can find a way to kind of break that cycle. I hope that employers will kind of, will start to wake up and say, you know, there's a lot of really talented people out there who don't have college degrees. And so I don't necessarily, I don't think that a requiring college degree for every single job out there is, is really the right course of action. I think there are other ways that people can uh, attain the skills that, that they need, uh, shorter term ways and cheaper ways. Uh, uh, short, uh, shorter term ways in order to get those skills. And I hope that employers will, will start to realize that. Um, I think that it's, it's in their financial interest to do so if they can find a, a, larger, a larger talent pool of, of not just people who have college degrees. And I mean, alternatively too, I can imagine, and I do recall seeing uh, news stories about this where, you know, a big five uh, accounting firm has has said we're not going to require college degrees right i could imagine a world in which employers say look you know we're getting these these students are we getting you know we're getting people out of four year colleges with college degrees but they don't actually have the skills that we need them to have to do these jobs i mean i remember i'm not sure who who i've seen give this talk but you know the the some ted talk about whatever it is you go into college for four years later, the, um, the field you were studying has changed so much that, you know, there are jobs that exist that you couldn't possibly have studied for, or you studied for a job that no longer exists, right? Mm -hmm. The pace of change and innovation in the market, uh, in the private sector is such that you're actually studying for something that you're not gonna be able to apply. So I can imagine if colleges are not able to respond to employers' needs, employers will look elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly hope that'll be the case. And I think that also kind of that issue of, you know, skill obsolescence, that the economy is changing and there are gonna be new jobs that are created, um, which will require different sets of skills gets it another issue that I have with the current four-year college model, which is uh, a lack of diversification. So uh, Beth Akers has a, a great new book out called Making College Pay. And um, her case is basically that, you know, college has a high return on average. You can look at the statistics and this, this will tell you that. Um, but we often don't consider the risk involved in college. And there are, there are many sources of risk out there. But one of the biggest there is, is, is lack of diversification, that you, you mm -hmm. literally are putting all of your eggs in one basket. You're investing all of your time and money in this single four-year degree, maybe a second graduate degree, but most people investing all their time and money in this single four-year degree. 
And a financial investor would say, that's nuts. That's like putting all your money in GameStop. You don't want to do that, you know? Right, right, <laughs> you, right. But in college, we think it's perfectly normal to say, um, yeah, put all your time and money in this single degree, which confers a single set of skills. Um, and probably if we were to actually take a look at what the best way to provide education and skills is, uh, we would say, we want a diverse set of skills. We don't want to do it all at once at one institution in one field. We will want people to be continually uh, taking classes and retraining throughout their lives, you know, in conjunction with, with the workforce, you know, uh, working yeah. while taking while taking maybe uh, a couple of classes uh, every now and then uh, in order to refresh their skills, in order to learn new skills as the economy is changing. Um, and that's, you know, that's if we were to an economist were to be designing our higher education system basically from on high, that's probably something that they would do. I know I realize that there's you know a lot of inertia of the of, of the existing model and the traditional four-year college degree is very entrenched and it's probably not yeah. going to go away. But I think we can look at what that ideal is and think of ways that we can maybe start to get closer to that, you know, in 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 um in in work and in the labor force. And that we can recognize that there's value in that diversification, you know, with the way that uh, we approve new schools and with the way that we subsidize higher education, that we can recognize that there are value in those alternative models and um and be able to support them in the same way that we uh that we support traditional colleges and universities. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a couple of things you've mentioned several times, and you just pointed to them there that I think it would be important for people in our audience to to understand a little bit better the facts on. Let's let's start first with the accreditation piece, mm -hmm. right? So you talked about the difficulty of entry into the market. Like if I want to start a new college, it would be very difficult to do that, mm -hmm. not just because of the cost, but there are a variety of different things that would need to happen to give my college credibility. And one of those things is accreditation. And I think the average person does not understand what college accreditation is, why it's such a big deal, why it adds to the cost. Can you talk a little bit about what accreditation is for higher education? Sure. So uh, accreditation is basically what a college needs in order to get access to federal aid programs, um, and which are a huge, huge source of revenue for most colleges. Most colleges could not survive without them. So this is the access to these subsidy programs is kind of a life or death issue for most colleges. And so in order to, to get access to them, you need to be accredited by an approved accreditation body. And these are usually you know, private nonprofits um, associations of existing colleges and universities out there. So right away, you kind of see the issue here. You are asking for permission to start a new college from the people you are going to be competing with. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it's like certificate of need when we go back to healthcare, right? Exactly. That, that if I want to, if I want to open my own MRI center, I have to get in a lot of places, all the people who run MRI centers to say, oh yeah, that's important that we have a new MRI center. And they have no incentive to do that. Right? <laughs> yes. And I, I did a study a, a few uh, years ago about uh, basically, well, the accreditation commissioners, the people on the boards who are actually making the up or down decisions on whether you're going to approve a new college, who are they? And I found that two thirds of them are people who work at the existing colleges and one third of them are actually are the college presidents or, or chancellors of those of those uh, university systems. So, you know, right away, you see that this is a big issue. So those people are going to be very, very biased towards the traditional higher education model. And they're going to put in requirements like a minimum number of books in the library and a minimum faculty right. to student ratio and all these trappings of the traditional higher education experience. And they're going to be looking very skeptically at a at alternative models or anybody who strays uh, 
who anybody who strays too far from the norm. And even if you do say, I want to start a traditional college, there's still a bunch of hoops you have to jump through. That accreditation is a process that can take several years in order to go from beginning to end. It can involve, you know, thousands of dollars in fees. Like you have to have site inspections. You have to you know, invite the commissioners to come to your campus and see that everything's up to snuff. And if you're doing all that while you don't have accreditation, I'm not sure how the college is uh, making any money. <laughs> so it's a, yeah. it's, a, it's a very high barrier to entry. And um one and and one reason why I think that uh, it's very difficult to challenge the incumbent providers in in higher education uh, and accreditation isn't even the only you know barrier to entry that there is out there. There's also state authorization, which is um, uh, it's basically if you want to operate a college, you have to get approval from the, the 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 local state regulator, the state authorizer, and that's for any college, not just colleges that participate in, in federal aid programs. And they also, you know, have more of a bias towards the traditional college model. They'll require things like, you know, a library that has a certain amount of seating area, stuff like that, you know, stuff that you can imagine yeah, that yeah. online colleges might have trouble with. Um, yep, and yep. Um, yeah, and so you have to get approval from both of these bodies and uh, that will, um, that can add uh, lots of money to the process that can add several years to the process. and. Yeah, it can make it it can make it very difficult to compete. Yeah, and and also works against innovation, like we were talking about earlier. If you've got people who are already at the existing colleges making decisions about accreditation, who are saying what's well, going to have to look like what we currently have, that works really against something radically different. Um, so the cost, the slowness, all these other things. Uh, so then the other point you made just in that response, talking about accreditation, is access to federal student aid. There's how many colleges in the United States now? It's about 6,000. Okay, so there's 6,000. And if I'm not mistaken, there's only two that don't accept that are not participating in federal. Yeah, um, it's it's aid. a small number. I'm not sure if it's two or or, 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 or three or four, but it's, it is a very small number. That, it's it's very small out of 6,000. Yeah, yes. Um, yeah. There are some, so, there, it's actually pretty interesting that there are are some you know smaller trade schools um, and uh, that are, are independents that will will not accept federal aid um, that mm -hmm. and they are completely for profit, completely pri proprietary, and we have a very you know bad view of for profit colleges. I think yeah, I, I yeah. think rightly so. There have been a lot of scandals in that area, which um, which which have shown that uh, a lot of them are very problematic. But we see that the for profit colleges which do not participate in federal aid just run these very short term programs. Um, you know, actually have much better outcomes. They have much mm -hmm. lower tuition. Uh, they tuition that's lower by half or more. They have much higher, uh, uh, say, uh, uh, pass rates for you know the the licensing exams, things like that. They have much higher graduation rates. Um, and so I think you know that that kind of does show that um, you know being free from kind of the the strictures of the accreditation and and uh, regulation system that we have does enable you to pursue a lot of innovations that. Uh, can really can really improve the quality of the education and can really improve what you're doing for students. But sorry, that was a tangent. So I'll please allow you. No, <laughs> no, no. That's okay. Question. That's okay. No, I think that's um, I think that's those are great examples, and I I do appreciate too the point about our we do have a bad view of for profit, and it's unfortunate that we sort of because of what's happened in for profit higher education we assume therefore it can't be done well, right? Um, but no, I mean, I think your point uh, about accreditation being tied to federal funding or to federal student aid, and, and of course that is what we're seeing in the news right now is this, uh, the amount of debt that people carry, student loan debt that they carry, and the prospect of forgiving that debt 
Um, so one thing in your report that I noticed was we can't say that colleges are charging more just because uh, student loan aid has it goes up and down, right? There are times when uh, Congress is more enthusiastic about encouraging, you know, funding for student loans and that sort of thing. But even if we took out everything else uh, and just looked at student aid, the cost of college, like the cost of college, if it had stayed consistent, people would be paying nothing for it at all, right? With student, um, student loan aid in terms of how much is available. But this is a huge issue, right? I mean, if I... Carrie's book, I believe, talked about the fact that uh, borrowing for higher education was growing at a faster pace than any kind of debt, including, you know, credit card debt and everything else, right? Mm -hmm. So we're taking on more and more debt because, again, we connect getting a four-year degree or a college degree with success in the long run. What is going on with student loan aid? I mean, is it something that um, the government is just completely out of control and throwing money at people and now mm -hmm. wanting to step back and say, oh, let's forgive all that, which you're, you're an economist, right? Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't work. <laughs> um, what, what's going on with student loan aid? And the, is the government, do they have, does the federal government, I know there's different kinds of student loans, right? There's federally subsidized, um, federally backed student loans. There are grants, all kinds of other things, but um, can you walk us through a little bit what the situation is in terms of loan, what percentage of students are getting loans, um, what does this do to, to their you know, future, the kind of debt that they carry? Sure. So 90% um, of the new federal student, uh, excuse me, 90% of the new student loans that uh, we issue are from the federal government. So obviously the federal government is close to the only player in this space. And uh, most of student loan policy is, is just going to be driven by the federal government because of that huge, huge outsized role that it has. And so there are a few different causes of, well, why has the amount of student loan debt out there uh, doubled or tripled, like even just the within the last 10 years? Um, and so I think that there's a bit of a misperception that all of this is going to support um, bachelor's degrees and undergraduate degrees mm -hmm. um, that we the last time that Congress increased loan limits for undergraduates was 2008. So okay. the good news is that average loan debt for undergrads has remained about 30,000 for, for, for new college graduates for the last uh, for the last several years, which I think is which I think is great news. Um, I think it's it's a testament to the power of, you know, putting limp common sense limits on borrowing because it, it will sure. somewhat constrain the ability of uh, colleges to to load students up with debt. Where a lot of it's coming from is one, that we have a lot more students going to college, a lot more students mm. taking on debt. And number two is that we have a lot more people going to graduate school. And for mm. graduate school, that is where federal student loan policy really goes off the rails because okay. unlike undergraduate loans, which are capped uh, at, 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 at a few thousand dollars a year, graduate student loans are unlimited. So you can literally take out um, if you're enrolled in a graduate program, you can take out loans up to the cost of attendance, which is defined by the university. And obviously the university is an incentive to define this cost of attendance as high as possible. So you see things nowadays like $150,000 one-year master's degrees that are out there that um, because you know uh, oh colleges want to take advantage of the largesse that the federal government is offering. And when you combine that with what I mentioned earlier, which is the fact that people want to get a graduate degree, to get a master's degree now, to distinguish themselves in the labor force and uh, hopefully get access to, to new types of jobs, 
combine that with this unlimited subsidy that we're providing for, for graduate loans, which by the way, is, um, it, it also allows for forgiveness of many of those loans after a set period of 10 or 20 years, depending on what kind of job you're in. So students often won't end up paying the full cost of that and taxpayers will be, will be picking up a, a big cost of uh, yeah. a big chunk of the cost for, yeah. for people's master's degrees, for people's graduate degrees. Um, you see that this is a big, big driver of the whole outstanding stock of debt out there, a big driver of the 1.7 trillion. Right now we see that almost half of the new student loans issued every year are going to graduate students. And that's something I think people mm-hmm. don't know that we have this, this idea of, you know, 18 year olds are taking on most of this debt. And that while that's true uh, in part, you know, they 18 year olds still are taking on a lot of debts, you know, the, the majority of it, not the majority, but close to the majority of it is going to, um, is going to graduate education. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is, I mean, this is interesting to me because I think, um, actually I have some really good stories from when I was in graduate school of people who uh, were getting funding from the school itself for their tuition and their assistantships and things like that, but were still eligible for a lot of funding, took out loans uh, you're not really supposed to be able to do this, but they got away with it. Um, took out loans, bought houses, fixed up the houses, and flipped them, uh, and then made money basically off of those loans because. And it was just one of these things where you thought this is insane that they're they're able to borrow this much money uh, for for programs that are not. I mean, these were not medical degrees. These were not you know, lawyers degrees, we were getting PhDs in philosophy, which I suspect the return on that is not especially high. Right? <laughs> um, but I, I mean, it was, it, I don't think they, I don't think they were doing anything illegal. I think they were just, they're kind of loopholes in, in, and as you say, they were able to borrow much more than they needed. Um, and it did seem like people were just like the government was just sort of handing the money out to, um, to graduate students. So I know, Preston, you've got a lot of thought into this, and we will, as I say, link to the report that I mentioned and some of your other work. But I think one of the tricky things about this is that, you know, we can all be kind of appalled at the cost of higher education um, while still recognizing that it is something that matters to people and that they see as a proxy for or, you know, the path to success or the path to the middle class, um, that sort of thing. And, and for many of us, it only affects us for a certain period of time, right? Like I've got two kids who are in high school are going to be going to college. This is something I've been thinking about for a while. But once they're out of college, kind of the incentive for me to care a whole lot about the cost of higher education, I suspect is going to diminish pretty dramatically. Um, so recognizing that there isn't, there it's a time-bound thing for most of us, our concern about the cost of higher education, recognizing too that we still have not unbundled all the goods that go along with the college education and it's a hard market to disrupt. What kinds of things can be done? Uh, I know you have several suggestions, um, but say like your top three suggestions that could affect the cost of higher education without diminishing the quality of higher education. Sure. So I think what we what we really need to think about, especially with regard to the federal role in higher education, is accountability. That we have, you know, too many programs out there that cost too much and just don't have the earnings return uh, that really justifies the cost. And also, a lot of programs out there 
where people don't finish, where the colleges kind of let them drop out, that you have schools getting taxpayer money that have 20% graduation rates. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, the number one thing, if we want to, you know, help students uh, realize what they went to college to do, which is to get a good job and to find, find employment, what we need is an accountability system for the colleges that are accessing federal aid that we need to say to colleges, you know, if your outcomes are not up to snuff, if you've got lots of students defaulting on their student loans, if you've got lots of students who are graduating into like poverty level jobs or no jobs at all, you're going to have to start facing some penalties. <laughs> you're going to, uh, whether that's being kicked out of the federal aid program, whether that's kind of a fine, whether that's paying a portion of the unpaid student loans, there are all sorts of ideas out there and we could have a whole, probably a whole other podcast just discussing what those ideas are. But, um, you know, that's, that's really the key that I don't see us solving the problem if, uh, if we don't have that kind of accountability in this huge pot of money, $130 billion a year that's going to colleges from the federal government. Because right now, it's basically no strings attached. If uh, this, if it doesn't work out for the students, uh, then the colleges get basically gets off uh, scot free. The students uh, left holding the bag. They've invested time and money in this degree, which which didn't pay off for them, and that can leave them in a pretty bad position. We need to start holding colleges accountable for for what they're doing for students, and especially saying that you know we are looking at the price you're charging, and we're looking at exactly you know how much you're drawing down on the federal purse here in, in terms of uh, grants and load aid and saying, well, what are the benefits of that? What kind of earnings are graduates getting and do those justify the costs? And so we can say to colleges, you know, yes, you can still raise your prices, but you have to make sure there's a justified. You have to make sure that you're investing in, in sorts of um, programs and new strategies that are actually going to increase the, the earnings potential of your graduates and increase their employment potential, increase their graduation rates. Um, and make sure that make sure that we're providing value for money because right now there's there's basically no safeguards in order to do that. Yeah, great. Well, we will, as I say, link to the report, which includes a whole variety of recommendations about various ways that we can either make the cost of college more transparent, um, hopefully lower the cost, keep things under control. I think I think accountability is a really important one. You also link in that report to examples where in some places there are efforts to do this from a policy perspective. Um, so we'll link to that report. I know you're on Twitter and you're pretty active on Twitter. We'll link to your Twitter account as well. Um, I believe you write for Forbes. Are you doing that on kind of a regular basis? I know That's right. Have yeah, I have, of- regular, I have a regular column at Forbes. I occasionally write for other outlets like National Review as well. And um, uh, yeah, awesome. I, I kind of I like to get the message out however I can. <laughs> Yeah, well, we appreciate it. And I think it's a really important subject because I don't think it's like a kind of an easy either or thing where there's a simple solution or there's a simple cause even to what's going on. And I think you do a really nice job of parsing that um, with a lot of of data behind it. So we want to make sure um, our audience gets a chance to uh, take a look at that. Um, Anywhere else that you would want people to go to look at your work? Sure. Um, So if, if possible, it would be great to, uh, to link to the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, which is uh, where I work and where uh, that, that uh, cost of college paper came out. And um, 
yeah, we've we've posted a lot of work on on higher education, on student debt, on the cost of college, and we mentioned healthcare. We've got a lot of great healthcare scholars too. So if people are interested yes. in that, you know, they're welcome to check out the the work of our healthcare team too. So I don't envy them we their will. task, but they they do it well. <laughs> <laughs> we will absolutely do that. We know that there is good work going on there too. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. This this has been a great conversation. I'm looking forward to hearing the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you will check out Preston's report, Why College is Too Expensive and How Competition Can Fix It, which we'll link to in the show notes. When I think about what I will take away from this conversation, this conversation is a little less like many of the subjects we discuss. Uh, We aren't talking here about tips on how to have more civil discourse. And we're not necessarily talking about a subject where there's a strong divide between two or more sides on an issue. I think, in fact, this is perhaps one of the topics that we've covered that has more agreement than any other. Most of us still believe that a college education is important, and it's important as a path to success. I suspect most of us feel like higher education is too expensive. I don't know that I've heard anyone say, boy, I sure wish I could pay more for college, or it really seems like I'm getting an absolute bargain on my kids' college tuition. So we're generally in agreement. Where we may not be in agreement is how to handle student loan debt and how to relieve that burden or how to ensure that college is something that is accessible to more people. What I will take away from this conversation as I think about it is really that it's a complex topic that I need to better educate myself and that instead of there being one policy solution or one side of this that makes more sense to me, it's something that affects all of us and we probably all have some responsibility to know more and to think more about how to change the situation because it sounds like from this conversation, there are alternatives, and most of us don't see many alternatives. So if I take something away and I'm going to apply it to conversations with people in my life, it will be that, that we are probably experiencing a lot of tunnel vision when it comes to higher education, and maybe we need to widen our perspective. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.